Hey friends, welcome to episode 12 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability, the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, episode 12 with Lynn McGregor. And Lynn is a registered architectural interior designer, and she's also the founder of the McGregor Design Group in Toronto, Ontario. So Lynn specializes in commercial work, um, but Lynn is also an accessibility consultant, um, and Lynn was appointed to Ontario's Building Advisory Council to assist with creating uh, the building codes and other special projects such as the new Accessibility Act when it pertains to our built environment. So in this podcast, Lynn gives us a great understanding of what our rights are when it comes to accessibility in the built environment. She also gives us a great overview of the Accessibility Act and the five different areas in the Act, and she tells us what we need to know when it comes to accessibility in our homes and in our office uh, or work locations, and what we can really ask for uh, of our employers. And make sure to stay tuned right to the end of the podcast because Lynn gives some fantastic tips on how we can make our homes more accessible, both entering our home, inside our home, and enjoying the outdoor spaces in our home. So here's Lynn. Hey, Lynn. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, Lynn, uh, pleasure to have you here. Uh, as the founder of the McGregor Design Group out of Toronto, uh, I know that you're involved with doing these great accessibility audits in and around uh, the city and the area. And um, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today to talk a little bit more about accessibility um, in the built environment. So maybe a good place to start, Lynn, would you be able to tell us just a little bit more about what uh, your firm does and and some of the work that you're involved in? Oh, certainly. Happy to. Our firm started in 1988 as a purely architectural interior design firm. And when I say that, we work mainly in the corporate environment in all buildings that require compliance with the building code. Um, we loved what we do. We still do a lot of work, obviously, in architectural interiors. Um, but just a little while ago, um, I was invited by the Ontario government to sit on one of their panels that's called the Building Advisory Council. And this group of people, uh, the group involves the representatives of architects, landscape architects, land developers, etc. I was invited to sit and represent Ontario's registered architectural interior designers uh, to help the government with the development of better building codes and with special initiatives such as, for example, Ontario's new Accessibility Act. The work that I did with them on that council really uh, made it clear to me that our clients would definitely benefit from a new service. There was a lot of sort of nervousness and unknown sort of requirements around the Accessibility Act and people were saying, you know, am I going to apply? What are they going to make me do, etc.? And we thought we just need to calm everybody down and say we can help you with this. 
So we decided to add to our service roster this accessibility audit service, which is basically going in to help either a landowner, a building owner, building managers, or even tenants of individual suites, a review of the facility uh, to let them know if indeed they comply currently and if there are any areas that don't comply with the new rules and regulations, we help give them a path towards compliance. So this service involves not only existing structures, but we also can do this audit of the designs of future buildings before they're built, just to ensure that the investment that's being made in the structure is going to be a solid one and that the building does indeed comply. But I always like to talk to people who are doing these things and say to them they have an option. They can either comply with the current laws today or they can go a little further and exceed those laws when it comes to accessibility because the Ontario government does have an intention of slightly ratcheting up the requirements on accessibility with every new edition of the building code that comes out. And that, of course, is the right thing to do. We're 100% behind that. But a lot of people don't know what the new requirements coming down the pike are going to be. So if we can help them with that a little bit, it just makes them that much more responsible Responsible, and it makes sure that that building is going to comply with laws even longer before possible renovations or modifications are required. So that's a long answer to your question, but we do architectural interior design, but we also help with accessibility audits to make sure existing structures and new structures will comply with the new rules. I love that. So you really, what you're doing is you're, with the accessibility side of it, is you're helping um current building owners and uh, and new building owners to create uh, an environment or a built environment that's accessible uh, you know for everybody exactly it it's the right thing to do and it's very gratifying to be able to help on that front for sure yeah fantastic so Lynn with your with your involvement that you're talking about earlier um, with being on, on on a panel that's helping the government to to look at new building codes and and then especially with the accessibility act and, and that set of things can you tell us a little bit more about the accessibility act um, and and what is I guess what's the purpose of it well, I think the purpose of it, I, I use my own words to describe these things, so I hope in, uh, people in government will not be offended by this, but I think the whole objective of the Accessibility Act is to try and help the citizens of Ontario um, to have democratic access to everything equally and to have a better quality of life from a complete perspective, which is a very big and a noble thing. Um, but I will say also the Ontario government in the passage of this act has the objective to make the province, as they say, and these words are kind of like big sweeping ones, but they want the province of Ontario to be fully accessible by the year 2025. Now, how one design, defines the word fully accessible is up to, I guess, you know, people would have different definitions of that. But I think the objective of all of this is very noble. And in passing this act, um, they've broken down the responsibilities for conversion and enhancement for people into five basic categories. 
Um, and most of us, I guess, have seen these changes take place around us. Um, but I will just review. Uh, we are definitely, as you've mentioned, the experts in the built environment portion of this, but there are other areas which are all woven in and matter just as much. The first one is termed accessible customer service, and that basically involves teaching anyone with a business how to assist those that have disabilities uh, be able to do business with you, be able to have options and choices, and that involves training of staff mainly. So, for instance, uh, you probably remember, everybody does, there were a few years ago, there were stories in the paper about individuals in fast food stores that were turning away service dogs because they said no pets allowed and they didn't seem to understand the difference between a service dog and a pet, for example. Uh, sensitivity training on those fronts is part of this training. But little things like even if an individual comes in who has a mobility challenge and they want to use a change room um, so that they can try on something before they purchase it in a store, People have to be accommodating and do what they can. Um, anyway, I won't go. I won't belabor it. But this is a very important section, so that uh, people's lives are complete. Everyone has the right to uh, customer service that is compassionate and appropriate. Um, the second area is information communications. This one is kind of a tricky one, but a very important one as well. Um, we forget sometimes with the Internet and the ability for everybody to use the Internet to research and find information that there are some people that are challenged with a typical computer. They either are visually impaired, hearing impaired, or there might even be dexterity problems. Um, so this this part of the act ensures that businesses, governments, etc., have websites and information that's even print information available that will be of use to all people with those types of challenges. It's a very tricky area, to be honest, but it's a very important one. Uh, the third section is employment, and I probably don't need to say too much about that because it is evident, but all employers have a legal responsibility to accommodate any individual with a disability to their very best ability. And uh, although the built environment involves some of that, there are other areas of employment when it comes to equal pay, etc., that all have to be respected as well. The next one is transportation, and this is one where I know a lot of people have noticed the changes when it comes to public transit in that buses are now designed with platforms that move down that allow people to board more gracefully and more independently if they are individuals that have disability and they may have an assistive device with them. All of that is very positive and the changes are good. It's We're not there yet because we still hear about the complaints about subway stations and whatnot that don't have operating elevators, etc., etc. We're getting there. It's slow. But because, of course, some of the complaints that are still there involve the built environment, it, it is a big thing to change. And that, of course, leads us into the fifth and final section that the Accessibility Act involves, and that is the built environment. And this includes buildings, but it also includes public spaces for individuals. So I guess... I hope that that was a long explanation of what this act is about, but it's basically to provide democratic access and an enjoyable life for all citizens. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you for providing that 
overview. Um, it's something that I hadn't, you know, dug into to, to get a full understanding of uh, previously. So you just added to my learning and I'm sure you added to a lot of other listeners uh, learning as well and um, gave them an understanding of uh, the different areas that the act covers. <laughs> as you were talking there, when you were talking to, about access to information, I started thinking about the podcast, um, right? And, and, uh, you know, indiv- it's crossed my mind before individual that's deaf isn't able to access uh, this information. Um, so I created a blog to go along with it. I'm thinking about transcripts and, and different ways for different people that um, might have different exceptionalities to to access the information. So um, it was a fantastic overview. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad it's of use to people. And the interesting thing, Eric, is it, it is a hard thing to make every bit of information accessible to everybody. But I think what's really wonderful here is people like yourself and everybody else are now thinking about it and doing their very best. And I think previously it wasn't even a subject that was raised in people's minds. So I think this act is very good because it just wakes people up and it makes them more sensitive to the fact that their full audience, some people need a little more assistance than others do. And as long as people are doing their very best to accommodate that, I think we're miles ahead of where we were before. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's focus in on your domain expertise, which is the the built environment. So there's a lot of talk around housing. Uh, housing's a, a super hot topic uh, with families that um, with with they have a loved one with some sort of a disability, um, you know, it also is a, is a hot topic when you're talking about the aging population um, and and individuals with disability. Employment is important, um, and and these built environments definitely impact uh, the listeners to this podcast. So, uh, for our listeners, listeners, what should they know about the Accessibility Act? Uh, when it comes to the built environment? Yeah, that's it's a big question or a big topic, but I guess if I try to organize my thoughts here to be of most use, I think the main thing that I can say is that um, the good news here is that when the Ontario government passed these new laws, um, especially related to the built environment, what they've done is they've basically said that all new structures that are being built, with the exception of single-family detached homes, but all larger structures, be they uh, condo buildings, apartment buildings, shopping malls, airports, office buildings, you get the idea, it's any place people gather, all of those new buildings must achieve a new higher set of standards for accessibility. And I think for um, all of the people that are listening to this podcast to understand what their rights are from the built environment is very important. So that if they're in an environment and they're finding it's not as compliant or it's not as accessible as it should be, they can discuss with the building owner what can be done. I think what I have to highlight at the same time here, because it's the other side of the coin, it is wonderful that new buildings are going to be more accessible, but it's a challenge um, when we have existing buildings that are not compliant. Um, Existing buildings, in accordance with the new Act, don't need to comply with the new standards until they're at a point where they are planning a fairly major renovation. 
at that point, and this of course is all done just because the province and the government of Ontario doesn't want to create financial hardship for people that say own, you know, smaller, older buildings. A lot of buildings cannot be made fully accessible just because of the way they are structured. But what they're saying is when an existing building is facing a renovation, it's at that point that it has to be made as accessible as possible. So, of course, in the built environment, for all of the people listening and those that care about accessibility, you're going to have a better assurance of full democratic access in newer buildings because, of course, they're all newly built to comply with all of these rules and regulations. But existing buildings still need to if they're being renovated. And I think about this in terms of, say, an older apartment building. If that older apartment building tends to only get decorative finishes refreshed, it gets painted and new carpet goes down in the common corridors or whatever, that decoration or redecorating is not considered to be a renovation. That building may not ever comply with the new codes and it may physically not be able to comply, but the new ones will. And if if a larger renovation is being done that affects the structure, walls come in or electricity changes, mechanical systems change, that is considered major enough to mandate that the building comply at that point. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So that's an important point. So if there's parents out there that are starting to think about what does housing look like for my son or daughter that um, has some accessibility concerns, you know, maybe the individual uh, uses a wheelchair, a, a newer building that needs to abide by the Accessibility Act might be a better better option. Um, yes, for sure. I think it's only fair, not that I would, I'm not trying to, I love old buildings and all the rest. I'm not trying to favor one over the other, but the, it is very true that the newer structures are going to make life easier for sure. And they're able to make life easier. This is the challenging thing because some old buildings just can't be fully converted. But something else to know that I think is very important on the residential side of things, the new residential structures such as condos, apartment buildings, etc., that are are the more high-density versions of residential housing. They also now need to offer 15% of all of their units, the suites in other words, as designs that are fully accessible. And this is very important. Previously, that percentage was considerably lower. Um, So if one is looking for a new home in a building such as this, it's very important for the people listening to this podcast to know that they can demand a private unit that is already designed to be fully accessible. It's only 15%. And I, as a designer and a sort of a volunteer participant um, on government panels and whatnot, feel that that percentage should be considerably higher. I think that's one of the rules that is going to be changing as time goes by. That's going to gradually increase, and it should. I mean, I'm waiting for the day when that's 100% of the units need to be fully accessible. Um, But another little tip or or something I should say, the new buildings, though, although 15% of the private units have to be fully accessible, 100% of all of the common areas have to be completely accessible in the newer buildings. So, for instance, the the corridors, the elevators, the party rooms, the pools, all of those areas that people share, the mail area where you pick up your mail, lockers, etc., all of those 
common areas have to be fully accessible in the new buildings. So it just means that anybody moving in and deciding to acquire one of those 15% accessible units will not only be able to have free reign in their own private space, but they will be able to use the rest of the building fully, which is very, very important. It's awesome that you're from from your position, you're starting to see some progress or, or positive changes, not yet where it needs to be, but but you're seeing those po- that positive movement, which is great. Yes, definitely, definitely. So we've talked a little bit about the housing side of things. What about from an employment perspective? What are some things that listeners should know about their rights with regards to the Accessibility Act when thinking about the built environment uh, where they work? Yes, that's a, a good topic too, because heaven knows most of us spend more of our time at work than they do at home. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the change is because I especially am a corporate interior designer. I know these rules very, very well, and I'm actually quite pleased with the progress that has been made. I guess, first of all, if we start by saying that all buildings, as I had mentioned at the lead-in, all buildings that are being built after 2015 must comply with the new Accessibility Act, of course, this means office buildings as well. So what people can look forward to in these types of structures, including office buildings, is that, for instance, when they go up to the building, they will have complete ability to access that building from any entrance to the building. Now, remember the the sort of bad old days when a building would just say, oh, we have an accessible entrance at the back of the building by the garbage bins. You can bring the person in that way. That has never been acceptable, and uh, it, it is not legal anymore. So all entrances to a building have to be fully accessible. And what that means is that all entrances have to have wider doorways than they have had in the past. They have to have automatic devices on the doors to enter and to leave. So you push a button, the door automatically opens for you, and you can gain entry. If there are weatherproof vestibules inside the building, those vestibules have to be large enough to allow for a larger turning radius of an assistive device, be that a scooter or a motorized wheelchair or whatever, Mm -hmm. so that people can come in and move around gracefully and gain access. This also involves, for instance, the the sort of weatherproof mats that people would throw on the floor of buildings. Those are no longer acceptable. We have to have recessed flush finishes so there aren't the tripping hazards that are created by things of, of that nature have to be integrated. But then as we move up a little farther into the building, If you're working in one of the office suites, it's important to know that the washrooms on your floor, these are the, I'm going to start with the core washrooms because the subject of washrooms in all buildings, including office buildings, has changed greatly. Everybody is used to the core washrooms in office buildings and whatnot where you have a male washroom, a female washroom, and there's a stall that is installed that is a little bigger than all the others that is considered to be there for people with mobility challenges. Well, um, those stalls now have to be larger than was allowed before because it's been discovered that most people are actually in motorized wheelchairs rather than manual, and those have a larger turning radius than manual wheelchairs. So all of those stalls within washrooms have to be larger than they were before. 
they have also changed the location of all of the grab bars and whatnot to be more effective than they were previously. Then when you're in the washroom, sinks have reduced down in height so that people can more easily use the wash, the lavatory facility as well. But something that's much more, um, I think, dramatic is that uh, this new law that has been passed in Ontario has also mandated the inclusion of what's being termed universal washrooms in all structures, including office buildings. And a universal washroom, the definition of that is a special washroom that's large enough for those that require an attendant to be with them. And if that attendant is a sex other than their own, they aren't able to use the core washrooms that are mandated for only males or females. So these new universal washrooms are for individuals that have an attendant of the opposite sex potentially, or just they need a little more area for two people. So those are being mandated in all buildings. And the rule currently is that there should be one of those uh, universal washrooms on at least every third floor. So maybe not as convenient as it should be. I mean, it would be nice if it's on every floor, but that also is something that will probably be ratcheted up in terms of more of them through a building space and an office space. But that's another thing that I think is a very important addition. Um, There are other things that people can look forward to, such as stairs and ramps in buildings are going to have a more gentle incline, making them a little easier for everybody to use. Uh, Ramps before that were put into some buildings were so steep that it was dangerous for people in a wheelchair. But I think when talking about uh, disabilities, I think the thing, I know I, for instance, have had knee surgery, and for a little while I was using ramps instead of the stairs just because it was a little easier for me. Um, I know some people are just elderly, and for instance, they approach stairs, they want to keep using stairs, but very steep stairs are difficult for people. So the law now makes sure that the incline of both ramps and stairs are going to be a little more gentle. But I think one of the most important issues for workplace environments that have has been approved is now all workstations that are designed in an office space have to be fully accessible. And if I describe that a little further, in the old days, an office could maybe provide one or two workstations in a multi-floor suite that would be designed to accommodate someone in a wheelchair or maybe someone who broke their leg. Uh, so those the employer thought they had done their job if they had one or two stations. The individual, if they wanted to keep working through their recovery, they would just be positioned at that workstation, whether it was on the right floor or whether it was close to the people that they had to network with. They, their obligation was up. Now the law states that absolutely every workstation in an office space must be accessible, which means that there is no excuse for an employer not to have 100% of their employees as people that have a disability. And I think that's an incredible move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. So in an existing office space, what is the requirement from the employer side of things? Do they need to provide me with an accessible workstation? 
They Yes, and that's a good question for people. If the office space that you're in has been built since 2015, legally they must provide you with all of the requirements that you have that are passed by law, and that is a fully accessible work workstation, but it's also a workspace with automatic control buttons on doors, with wider corridors, wider doors, washrooms as described, etc., etc., if the office space is an older environment and it was built prior to 2015, there is not an obligation for the employer to meet these requirements. But that being said, if an employee who understands the requirements of newer workspaces can inspire and, and basically educate that employer and I think that in nine times out of 10, that employer knows that this is coming down the line anyway, and they will comply with the rules. If the worst thing happens and that employee makes the request and it's not complied with, one can always report this to the government and the government can do an investigation. But I will say that most employers are very sensitive to not being labeled non-compliant employers. So I think just understanding what the new rules and regulations are, if it's mentioned by an employee that requires some assistance, generally peak speaking an employer will comply before they're forced to right yeah and that makes a, t- a ton of business sense from the employer's perspective as well right if if oh, yes. i'm if i'm set up to in in a comfortable workspace that uh, you know, doesn't have any barriers that I have to get over um, to be able to do my work, then I'm going to be more uh, efficient and effective in doing that work and, and produce better results. Oh, yes. And I mean, this situation of, of disability in a work environment sort of hits everybody at different levels. I've worked with individuals that have gradually become disabled, for instance, because of a condition that they have. Those individuals have great knowledge Knowledge and the company can't afford to lose them. So, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world to accommodate them and make their life easier. Um, and some people are people that have a temporary disability. And once again, being able to keep them in the office and producing for the, the employer is a positive thing while they get through recovery. So it is a win on both fronts. And I guess from my position, I think what it does is it also, because office spaces are being designed this way now, it opens up a lot more opportunity for the employee that may be faced with a disability. They can now not just have to work at the one place that they know they can be accommodated, they can work anywhere. And that's a really important move forward as well. So let's let's switch gears for a second and, and go back to housing. And I know that this is a... Housing is a a concern or a topic or something that uh, a lot of families are thinking about, and it could be uh, you know uh, parents have a son or a daughter with a disability living in their home, or they're considering you know what is what does that new home look like for their son or daughter while they're living independently. But if it's if we're talking about uh, maybe a residential uh you know single dwelling home or uh maybe a townhouse or something like that what are some of the things that families can consider um to to make those types of homes more accessible 
Yes, this this topic is probably the trickiest one of all, Eric, because a lot of small homes, um, I, I mean small homes, I should say existing homes, were built prior to society being as aware of this type of need. And some of them, I mean, I've even seen some new homes that are built now that don't legally need to comply that are being designed sort of with two steps up to a powder room and then two steps down to a sunken living room, etc. And when I go through and tour them, I think, oh my God, they still don't get it. Like they, this is so unnecessary. There's no excuse for new homes being designed that way. But sometimes older homes, homes have that type of layout and they do become a bit of a challenge. But I I have um, some suggestions here, which I hope will be of some use. When looking at an existing home and a desire to stay in place, age in place, etc., I always look at these um, challenges sort of from three different perspectives. The first one being the challenge of gracefully getting in and out of the home. I've got some suggestions there. The second one is once you're in the home safely, enjoying a full proper life while you're inside the home. And again, have some suggestions there. The last one is maybe one that some people won't think about, but it's enjoying the outdoor areas of your home as well. Because after all, that's why most people have a home to enjoy all the seasons, etc. So I won't forget about that component as well. But starting at the beginning here, assistance in getting in and out of the home Again, one of the biggest challenges, a lot of older homes were designed intentionally with a couple of steps up to the front door or any access doors and a slope of land away from the foundation of the home. This was done, obviously, to keep things like rainwater and melting snow, etc., away from the foundations, away from inside the home. There was a logic to it, but obviously, easier if the entrance to a home is on grade so people are able to roll in nicely and more easily. There is a way of doing that in a lot of homes and that is to redesign slightly for an entrance on grade and to accommodate the drainage problem that has created a lot of these elevations or lifts or curbs into a home. They have developed new grade level drainage um, uh, grates that can be put both outside the home and in Inside the home. So the need for that step up is eliminated and it means that if there is any like a strong rain that comes down or whatever, that water is taken away from the property through the grade level grate before it actually can get in. So if a home is able to be slightly redesigned to accommodate that, that's a really good thing to do. And these type of grates and drainage systems are very cost effective now. They used to be sort of a premium, but they aren't anymore. Okay. Um, and just do, do you have an idea on what something like a, a, a renovation like that might cost? I, I understand that it would depend maybe on the, you know, the size of, um, you know, grade you need to put in, but... Yeah, it would. And and it would also um, depend upon, for instance, if someone owns a bungalow and they want to be able to stay there, they maybe are only compensating for a lift of a foot or 18 inches, in which case the cost of the renovation would be different. But if they're saying, just what's in my mind right now is a bungalow where the entrance, you know, the little wartime bungalows that are so prevalent in, in the GTA here, where there's maybe five steps up to a little 
porch and then an entrance where there's another one step up before you get in, the cost of a renovation in that type of situation would be considerably higher. So I hate to quote these things, but I can say that if you're in a situation where the change is less intensive, that probably could be done for about $2,000. If you're in something that is much greater, like the step-up situation, I, I wouldn't even quote it because I would need, I say I, but someone working with the owner of the home would need to look very carefully at, well, the front looks like too much of a challenge. Is there a side entrance door with a stair not too close by that might be the better candidate, etc.? There may even be a need in that situation to create another entrance way in that's going to be a more logical one and a safer one. Right. Yeah. I appreciate you you answering that question because um, for for someone that's listening, it's like, hmm, sounds like a good idea, but sounds expensive. So yeah, um, it it, will. And you know, it's an interesting thing because I feel for families in this situation. um, But I say, you know, don't stop fighting for these things because everybody wants to age in place these days. And it's more cost effective for our government if homes are designed to allow people to age in place. And the reason why I say age in place is that this is why all homes should be designed to be much more accessible than they have been in the past. So someone can be fully able-bodied at the moment, but they are planning for their future. And that means that at some point, they may need some assistance. And if that home is designed to readily give them that assistance by taking away the sort of mobility challenges, then that's a better designed home. But if someone has a challenging home, it's probably a good idea to bring someone in and help them with this and say, okay, these are the areas that need to be altered. What would the cost be to do all of this? And then balance that against possibly considering a a different home that is designed with all of that already integrated into it. And, And this is why I say the conversion of an existing home is probably the most challenging thing. But, you know, again, we, we don't stop looking at it because uh, it may, if we're lucky, it may be something that can be done. Yeah, yeah. And and something that's coming into my mind is um, I know in the UK that there's grants that exist to make your, your home more accessible. Um, are there, are you aware of anything like that in, in Ontario or in Canada? Oh, there are grants. Yes, there are definitely grants in Ontario to help any family integrate barrier-free or more accessible elements within a home. There are. Okay. Um, and, and I, um, uh, what I maybe can do um, is assist by giving you some connections to that at the end of the program. I'll provide that to you, Eric. Yeah, for sure. That would be great, Lynn. I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. And I mean, just speaking about a home, I, there were a few other elements that I thought I should mention as well. Um, everyone thinks that you can resolve all problems by putting ramps in when it comes to an entrance into a home. But the truth is the new gradient for any sort of ramps to get you up over a stair situation has been made much more gentle now. And that's a very good thing because a steep ramp can be a very dangerous thing for someone with a mobility challenge. So um, to give people an idea, the gradient now is shallow enough that to rise every 12 inches, you need 15 feet of run for a ramp. And for most homes, that's a very challenging Uh, amount of ramping required. So once again, if we're lucky and we're in something that's kind of bungalow-like, that could work very, very nicely. But if we've got steeper stairs we're looking at, it may be a bit of a problem. 
And I guess the other thing I just want to say uh, to sum up this getting in and out of the home, both outside your entry door, like assuming we're redesigning this so someone can get up and inside the home, both outside that entry door and inside the entry door, you need a platform that's a minimum of six feet by eight feet to allow somebody that has a, a, a mobility device to navigate the door and the door swing. And that space is sometimes available inside a home and outside home, sometimes it's not. So it becomes another factor for safe entry in. But I just thought I would mention that because the ramp is not the be all and the end all. We have to do more than that to make sure that it's safe. Right. The ramp needs to take you somewhere where you can <laughs> be mobile. Yeah. Rest right? safely so. before you reach out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Perfect. And And now what about inside of the home? Yes, inside of the home, and this is nice. We're I'm, I'm picturing this solution. We've got ourselves nicely ensconced inside the home, and we want to make sure we're able to use that home and every inch of it as happily as we can. So the first thing I always look at is flooring materials in that people that have mobility challenges um, should have flooring that prevents all tripping hazards, and this includes bumps or thresholds into showers or where floor treatments change. And I know in the past, people have thought, well, what this means is we're just going to take away of all of the carpets and the sort of interesting, warm, uh, sound-absorbing things that are in a home, and we'll have either straight hardwood or we will have linoleum or whatever so that we don't have any possibility of a problem. But we can do much better than that these days. And one thing that you can definitely do is recess warm carpets into a hard flooring, be it hardwood or stone or whatever, so that you create a nice flush finished surface between the soft flooring and the hard flooring. And this creates a much warmer, nicer ambience for people to live with, but one with no tripping hazards whatsoever. So that's something that I can suggest that might make things a little more comfortable for people. Um, the other thing is that, of course, all rooms should be designed with a proper turning radius so that people can move around, whether it's in a washroom or a kitchen or a laundry room, that larger turning radius of a six-foot diameter needs to be accommodated in the design of a space if one is to be able to use every corner of the home. And that's certainly an easy thing to do as long as someone assists with the layout of furniture and things like that within in a space. There are some existing homes that have very tiny washrooms, very tiny closets and laundry facilities. In those situations, probably one would like to lay those areas out a little bit differently with open fronts or doors that open to give you that turn radius inside and allow you then to close up, say, laundry facilities after you're finished using them. But that the turning radius is a big one. Uh, kitchens are an area that are very important to any family. Family. And I always think, I like to assume that the kitchen is going to be used by more than one individual, maybe some with a mobility challenge and maybe some that don't have a challenge. So kitchens can be designed with some counters at a lower level and with knee space underneath them so that families can do preparation together. Some surfaces can be higher, some lower, so that everybody is able to participate in food preparation at the same time. I I think that's very important. And if there's a dining area within the kitchen or adjacent to the kitchen, it's important that the table and the chairs be designed so that if someone 
is does have a wheelchair that that table is designed with a height so the wheelchair can automatically flow right under the table so that people can easily seat themselves and participate in dinner discussion and whatnot. I mentioned laundry rooms, but there are very nice uh, things available for laundry facilities that make every family member able to use the wa- use the laundry and do the laundry. And I mean, it's a very easy thing. For instance, front-loading machines make it a lot easier for everybody to democratically do laundry than the top-loading type. And there are things like folding tables that are available now with crank height adjustments so that um, if more than, of course, if the, if the uh, home is only used by one individual that would like a lower height, then a permanent table of a lower height can go in. The challenge is always if more than one person is there and people of different um, situations want to use that table, then a crank to adjust the height of that table is a perfect solution so anybody can use it when they need to. Two other things that come in very handy, of course, are adjustable beds for people. So they not only help people sleep better, but they also provide more independence in terms of getting ready for going to bed and getting up in the morning. And the last one is one that most people know about. But if the home that people would like to stay in do have stairs, the stair lifts that are available now that everybody sees advertised on TV are incredibly cost effective. And the nice thing about them is they up out of the way if other family members want to use the stairs so that the foot traffic area can be cleared of them but they're there for anybody whenever they need them and that helps people use all floors in a home which I think is lovely. Yeah I I love that Lynn. Very practical ideas uh, that families can 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 consider to make their uh, home environment more accessible and livable for everybody in the family. It's it's funny. Uh, the, the stair lift was a huge item of of contention in uh, in my parents' home for a long time. Uh, it was pretty divided between the family whether we should get one and or not get one. So for the longest time, we didn't have one, and uh, it was very surprising in terms of how much how little space it takes up on on the stairway way and how cost effective it was for my sister it's she loves it because it makes it the house now she can access two floors uh without needing any support to uh to get up the stairs so yeah and it just gives back that dignity that you don't have to ask if you want to go somewhere i think that's the most critical thing Home should be accessible by everybody whenever they want it. Yes, I think they're an incredible invention. And yes, very cost effective, which is lovely. And I do understand, and this I don't know as much about, but I do understand that there's even a program that helps make them more cost effective for people that can't even afford the normal cost of them. So um, no excuse not to at least look into them if a family needs one. Yeah, great. I'll, I'll do a little bit of research on that and include what I can find in the show notes for, for listeners. Great. So the, the third and final kind of piece of the home, the, the outdoor space, what tips or thoughts do you have to make the outdoor space more accessible? Well, this, I love outdoor space and I'm a big gardener, so I'm very empathetic with this because I had a girlfriend that uh, would come over all the time and she became wheelchair bound and she just always wanted to help me with the gardening. But in most cases, when I was sort of digging the flower beds and all the rest, she couldn't participate as well. So what I've discovered is the best thing to do for people that really enjoy not just working in the garden, but enjoy 
smelling the flowers, harvesting the vegetables, whatever, is to design a garden with raised flower beds. And it's easy to do this. It's not that difficult at all, but it means that people that enjoy sort of interacting with nature and planting, growing things, are able to do so at a level, even when in a wheelchair, um, that works for them and allows them to do just as much as anybody else. And actually, raised beds kind of help backs uh, of people that don't have to be in a wheelchair as well. They're a clever thing for everybody in a family. But I know that one thing that helps very much as well is if indeed you're planning these and raising the flower beds up to allow all family members to participate is to remember to install hose bibs and power receptacles at a logical height in the vertical surface of the raised area because that way people not only can sort of dig and experience but they can actually maintain and fully take care of that garden as well even if they are uh, mobility uh, challenged and have a device with them. It's just a great idea. Another one that another idea that I think is so such a logical one but it's to add illumination in the garden areas that you would like all people to be able to use and along the travel pathways. Um, this lighting helps uh, not only keep people safe, so if there is anything, a stick falls out of a tree or whatever, they can see it very well so that if there is something that falls in front of them, they can be safe. It allows them to, everyone, I mean, and this is anybody, the lighting allows people to appreciate and enjoy the garden space for more hours in a day as well. And I just think it's a very important thing in terms of both safety, enjoyment, and and uh, being able to see your pathway through a garden. I guess just a, a one tip on top of that is... Um, I think that some family members maybe need a bit of assistance, even if they're just, they get tired more quickly than other people do. So one thing I think is also very important that if you have a fairly large garden, to design it so that there is a rest place every so often in the garden. So if someone is out there enjoying and their legs get tired, they have an area where they can sit down, where there is good illumination, um, and just enjoy the garden and then get up and resume that activity rather than being worried about going outside because they fear that there won't be somewhere for them to sit down and therefore they never enjoy the garden space and I feel what's very good is you can design cleverly sort of um, veiled vertical uh, grips around the garden as well so that if someone is feeling a little bit tired or there's a bit of an incline there's an area to grab to stabilize yourself this might even be a lovely day when there's not that steep an incline but your hand isn't readily available and your chair starts to swing or there's a wind out so just vertical areas where people can take a hold will comfort them as well in an outdoor space mm -hmm. yeah fantastic lynn i i think you've provided a wealth of uh, insight and uh, and ideas and suggestions for our listeners today and um, really appreciate you giving us the overview of the Accessibility Act and and talking us through what our rights are in terms of accessibility in, in new built environments or built after 2015 and and the ideas around building um, or, or modifying or retro retrofitting existing um, workspaces and, and homes and all the tips that, that uh, you just provided for uh, entering uh, a home, for being in a home, and uh, and enjoying the outdoor space of a home. So, um, Lynn, if 
uh, somebody listening wants to get in touch with you to have a conversation or to learn more about the accessibility audits uh, that you provide maybe for a building that they own or to put you in contact with uh, with their employer uh, to make their workplace uh, help make their workplace more accessible um, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you well, I'll provide you our, our email contact. That's probably the easiest way for most people, but I'll give you our office phone number as well in case anybody finds that way to reach out is easier for them. And our office number, it is the McGregor Design Group, is 416-359-0002. Anybody can call and leave a number, and I'd be more than happy to help any way that I can. Um, it's been a pleasure sharing these uh, bits of information with you. And um, I have to say, I think that Ontario is getting, we're moving in the right direction. There's so much more to be done. And the participation of a lot of people helps us get where we need to get. So um, if they would like to reach out and give suggestions or anything else, that would be just most appreciated. Fantastic. And Lynn, we're very appreciative of the work that you're doing to make the world a more accessible place. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Okay, great. So thanks for coming on the podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure having Lynn McGregor on the podcast today to talk about accessibility in the built environment. Make sure to check out the show notes um, or the Empowering Ability blog at empoweringability.org for more valuable resources, such as some more information on grants that Lynn and I discussed in the podcast. Uh, Ontario offers the Assistive Devices Program, ADP, to help people with long-term disabilities pay for customized equipment like wheelchairs, hearing aids, and it also covers covers things inside of the home, like home renovations. Uh, So they cover ramps, lifts, grab bars, shower aids, uh, even, you know, when we start talking about wheelchairs and batteries to replace um, in your uh, your existing equipment. So uh, they cover 75% of that cost of of the equipment and supplies, and you'd be responsible for 25%. So that's a big help for a lot of families to, you know, make the the world a, a more accessible place. So make sure to check out the, uh, the show notes for more details and you can get the link and uh, much more information on, on the grants there. If you're outside of Ontario, just a quick Google search to, to figure out what grants might be available for accessibility in your area will give you a ton of information. Uh, so next week on the podcast is the start of what many listeners uh, of the podcast have been waiting for. And I've created a mini series on housing. So many families are struggling with finding a housing solution for your loved one. And I'm digging into the current housing situation, and I'm going to share some great success stories that uh, families have been experiencing, and I'm going to bring in a global perspective. So we're going to look at what housing, what's going on with housing in other, other areas of the world and bring in some of that learning. So um, it'll give you some ideas that uh, hopefully will move you forward towards finding your uh, ideal housing solution. So you, it's something you're not going to want to miss. So make sure you join us next week. And thank you, as always, to our listeners that have left us a review on iTunes. Your reviews really help me know that this podcast is moving in the right direction and getting you the information that you want. So keep those reviews coming on iTunes and let me know your feedback. 
and I'll get you the information stories that you want to hear. Uh, also, when you leave a review on iTunes, it helps other uh, listeners find the podcast. Thank you for leaving those a review for those that have left a review. And if you're thinking of li- leaving a review, I thank you for that. So that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the podcast with Lynn and our talk on accessibility in the built environment. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability live a full and meaningful life.